uh, awful <laughs> in its uses. Coming up this hour, Hayden Donnell standing by for Midweek Media Watch. Kia ora, good evening. Kia ora, Karen. Awful, you tried it? Oh, I have. I actually went to Casador, which is a great game meat restaurant, you know, a month or two ago. I'm in favour of it. I mean, if you're going to kill an animal, you may as well uh, use it all. You know, you don't want to just be wasting it. That's what a lot, a lot of people said as well. Um, use the full animal if you're actually going to eat it. Well, absolutely. It's already dead. So so let's start with Christopher Luxon because he's marked his first year in the job, one he, year on. He has. Uh, what a year it has been. And over the weekend we had just a blizzard of stories about that anniversary and about Christopher Luxon and how he's doing. We had two separate opinion pieces on stuff, uh, one by Andrea Vance headlined, uh, who is the real Christopher Luxon and can voters warm to him? You had one from Damien Grant headlined, I am tired of Christopher Luxon acting as if he was some jovial everyman. And over at the Herald, you had an opinion piece from Heather Duplessy-Allen that was headlined, Why Flip-Flop Luxon is Making Voters Nervous. And you had a podcast, the front page headline, One Year In, Can Christopher Luxon Beat Jacinda Ardern? And all these pieces, they're sort of angled on that, you know, assessing the national leader's performance a year into the job and his chances of winning an election. And from what you've said, the overarching theme would appear to be a lack of enthusiasm? I wouldn't say that his press advisers were welcoming the uh, weekend's media clippings on Monday morning. I guess the overarching theme is that voters aren't exactly ecstatic about Luxon's performance in these commentators' eyes. And Vance blames that on uh, a gap between his private stances on topics like abortion and his public positions. And Damien Grant, it's a bit of a theme and stuff, you know, same kind of identification of this sort of falseness. But he he sees it as Christopher Luxon playing a serious man or being a serious man, playing a jovial, relatable character who does shifts at McDonald's and it not being quite quite, you know, real. Heather Duplessy-Allen, she blames his flip-flops on policy, stuff like getting the clean card discount where the national supports it. Uh, wrong, and all these pieces, they're kind of this this horse race sort of coverage, you know, the political horse race with, race with Labour, and Duplessy-Allen in particular almost reads like she's doing some pro bono political advice there. And <laughs> she so, is. <laughs> yeah, quite possibly. So, I mean, uh, th- this is a, a little bit of that. I don't know, it's... it's Absolutely fine commentary. But uh, over at the Herald's podcast, the front page news sort ZB's chief political reporter, Aaron Darman, he employed this uh, nautical analogy in his assess- assessment of where Luxon is now and where he needs to get to. It will be a fascinating next year to see how do you transition from a steady ship into a ship that wins races. Not just a ship that is sitting nicely on the water, but actually one that is able to get some pace, to get some momentum, and to bring people on board. Mm, It is a nautical analogy. Uh, A lot of uh, coverage for one weekend, though, Hayden. I mean, is there evidence that this is what we, the people, want to read and hear about? Yeah. Uh, So this is a big bugbear of my boss, Colin Peacock. So (laughs) it's time to... Draw the summoning circle, light the candles, burn some sage, and try and summon the ghost of Colin Peacock. Because if you had Colin on here, he'd tell you 
There's little evidence that the public actually does care as much as the media about this sort of personality stuff and about the performance of the leaders like this. And so one of the big pieces of evidence in these columns, and they all use it to support their thesis, and it's that Luxon is lagging behind in the preferred Prime Minister polls. But if you actually look at the preferred Prime Minister poll, you'll find that both he and Jacinda Ardern, they're competing with two other candidates that we don't often hear about called I Don't Know and Refuse to Answer. And added together, <laughs> those two candidates now make up a full third of the vote. And do so they? I they Don't do. Know and Refuse to Answer actually win out sometimes. Yeah, sometimes they're actually bigger than Jacinda Ardern. <laughs> <laughs> they're doing, they're doing really well. They could win the next election. But, but basically, a significant portion of the public is telling us they don't even care enough to form an opinion on these people. But we still give them blanket coverage at the expense of everything else. And that's the opportunity cost here, right? That's what we're talking about. These commentators, they've got a weekly political column. They can use it to talk about anything under the sun, any issue. And we've got a housing crisis, cost of living crisis, climate crisis, infrastructure crisis, health sector crisis, and if nationals to be believed, an education crisis and a crime crisis. And they're all happening right now. And yet very often our opinion pages are filled with what reads like a bit of psychoanalysis on a couple of individuals' performance and political strategy. And, whoo, I need to... I'm, I'm no longer possessed by Colin Peacock. That, that's, that's over and done with. Oh, the uh, sage worked very well. Yeah, I think so. So that was, that was me channeling him. Oh, do you agree with the Colin thesis? Because, you know, unfortunately, personality tends to overshadow policy every time. Yes. And, I mean, I always have a lot of time for Colin's theses, often literally. I do spend a lot of time listening to them. And, you know, I, I'm but I'm just probably a bit more sympathetic to this kind of leader-centric coverage than him. And I think it's because leaders really do matter. People really do seem to make their voting decisions in part on the people leading the parties, or sometimes in whole. And it may just be the biggest single factor in deciding elections, for better or worse. So, I mean, the classic example of this is 2017, when Jacinda Ardern took over from Andrew, Andrew Little as the leader of the Labour Party. And not one single other person in that party changed, not one single policy really changed. They just put you know, some different branding on it and a new face on the front, and they went from languishing you know, in the double digits behind National to being able to form a government at the election. So, I mean, it is a big deal. Uh, and I think really the interesting media question here, though, is why it's a big deal. How much does our coverage actually contribute to it being a big deal? Or, <laughs> you know, uh, are voters focusing on leader, leader performance? To what extent is that because we're focusing on leader performance? Well, it can be seen as a bit of a chicken or egg type question because does the public care about the party leader's to the extent they do because the media focuses on them, yeah. or does the media focus on them? Uh, you know, is that because what the public wants to read? You, you yeah, I mean? and I think it is. It's not black or white there, right? Like, they're all feeding into each other. And I, in part, I think it is a reader driven thing. You know, personality politics. You know, human beings are easier to read about over your eggs benedict in a cafe on a Saturday morning, you know, than a column diving into the nitty gritty of infrastructure funding issues or, you know, the structural reasons for the lack of delivery in the health sector. And 
So there could be really compelling commercial reasons for the media's focus on these personalities at the front, right? They humanise the parties and they may be to some extent following their audience metrics metrics as they kind of have to do as commercial entities. But uh, then the metrics as well, maybe they're following the media's focus. Maybe people's concerns would change if we if we did inform them better about those structural issues in the health sector. Maybe they would care more about that. I don't know. It's a tricky question. And also because the journalists who are writing these pieces, they're in touch and you know their focus is on these politicians every single day. Yeah, you can't have a more kind of Picasso-esque distorted perspective on politicians than a journalist has, right? I mean, particularly political journalists, and this might be the issue, right? They see these people up close every day. They cover them. They obsess on the minutiae of their personalities and how they're doing. And I think, uh, as John Rowan once said, according to Colin again, being a political journalist is like being in the front row of the cinema. You can only see... The pixels. So, I mean, I, I guess, yeah, you, your perspective is so out of touch with what a normal person's would be on politicians that it's hard to bridge that gap. And as a, as a result, most people, you know, they don't see politics like that. You can see that in the results for I don't know and refuse to answer. You know, they, they do catch more of an overarching vibe of the leaders. And in their day-to-day, they're probably more focused on stuff like whether they can actually afford childcare or get seen at their local emergency room. Right. But they, they do tend to, not even tend to, they do sway what the politicians themselves do, uh, journalists, because, you know, politics changes so quickly. And, and Luxon got really hard on parents over school attendance uh, after those negative um, headlines. So they'll be looking at that themselves and going, well, this is what we've got to do to go out there to change the journalist's view of ourselves. Yes, and <laughs> we're getting into probably complicated territory there about, uh, you know, how much journalists are shaping perception rather than commenting on perception. Right. Just there. And it's also convenient for the media to focus on personalities and who's up and down because when they do that, they don't have to make value judgments on policy and that helps them seem objective. Yeah. This is the media, I guess, theory section of the show here. Uh, I think that to some extent... These modern modern media structures, where you're of objectivity, uh, and the 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 um, enforcement of objectivity, how that's perceived, that that actually feeds into this a little bit. So we're told we shouldn't make value judgments on policy, and that kind of incentivizes journalists in some way to focus on ephemera and personality, to sort of become more like tea leaf readers or amateur sociologists, you know, reading the electorate. Uh, rather than kind of real analysts on real things. And and it's called horse race political coverage. And the reason it happens is it allows journalists to write at a remove. You're not making value judgments on policies or who's right or wrong. You're talking about who's winning the political battle, you know, who's up, who's down, whether Luxon is connecting with voters. You know, you're, you're speaking in the voice of the disembodied voter somewhere out there rather than your own. And you're not saying whether his tax plan is wrong or right. You're saying whether he's performing politically. And that makes you seem objective, but it maybe doesn't make you say things that are more worthwhile. And it's kind of a faux objectivity, which if you've listened to this show for a while, you know I'm not a particular fan of. Uh, the other thing is that this kind of prognosticating, and I know that I'm going a bit Colin here, but it's kind of it's proven many, many times to be kind of worthless. So, I mean, we're just plain wrong a lot of the time. Look at the US. 
where just about every media outlet, conservative and liberal, they all predicted this red wave going into the recent midterm elections. And they got more of a small red trickle. You know, commentators, reporters, they'd probably offer more light and less heat if they did actually turn the focus to. And I'm sorry to sound so superior and pretentious, but the issues. <laughs> well, there were quite a few columns focusing on the issues uh, this weekend as well, though, weren't there? Yeah, columns and articles. I should, I should go. I shouldn't go on without focusing on the positive. We want to lift people up on this show. You know, great column from Mash, Max Rashbrook and stuff. He uh, it followed him as he charted a course from Wadestown, which is apparently, you know, I don't know my Wellington that well. It's a rich Wellington suburb to Waitangi Dua and Pori So this is one of the poorest suburbs in the area. And the central conceit of the column is that in the half hour car journey between these two places, the life expectancy for local residents dips 10 years. So you want to talk about important things? Well, this is probably the most important things. You know, how long people live, life itself. So, the, and, and the life expectancy dip, it's a function of poverty. And Rashbrook portrays that poverty. He weaves in these facts and figures, but he also does these more prosaic descriptions. You know, the alabaster whites of the Wade's townhouses, the $4.90 cost of a bag of oranges and the $1.90 cost of white bread at the Waitangi Dua Dairy. And, and he kind of concludes, you know, you know, so many hopes and triumphs and joys are packed into a year, yet poverty robs people of 10 times that. We only have one life, and it is an awful injustice that some get so much less of it than others. And that's pretty compelling. I thought that was great writing. And another thing, speaking of life, Charlie Mitchell's stuff as well. He expounded on New Zealand's hyper-aging population and the stress that's likely to put on all of us in the coming decades. So, uh, we, we're getting really old here. Uh, 2048, half of the population of places like Thames, apparently they're going to be 65 plus. And we've seen what happens when that happens in other places like Japan. And apparently they've got ghost towns over there, places where roads don't get sealed, where whole villages are mostly retirement, you know, spaces and, uh, you know, businesses closed, that kind of thing. Well, Hayden, uh, shifting the theme a little from local politics to international politics, uh, the Herald is being criticised for running what's essentially propaganda for the Chinese government? Yeah, well, that's the criticism for sure. And Duncan Grieve of the spin-offs, he's written about this. The story itself was shared a lot on social media. But basically, the Herald ran sponsored content, declared sponsored content, from the People's Daily of China, a Chinese publication. And it was headlined, China, Historic Battle Against Poverty. The subhead was Relocation and Revitalization. See, 100 million people lifted out of poverty. The story is very positive about China's efforts to raise people out of the middle class. And that might be because the People's Daily is, in fact, owned and operated by the Chinese Communist Party. So that hasn't gone gone down all that well with readers who have accused the paper of allowing itself to be a mouthpiece of the Chinese Communist Party. How have they dealt, the Herald dealt with the criticism? Well, um, went back to a tried and true tactic, one that I've spoken about before. Uh, within hours of Grieve writing to them with some questions, they apparently disappeared the story, pulled it down. So, <laughs> yeah, Got just, rid of just it. Just got rid of it. Um, it happened to a few other stories in sort of recent months as well. And when they found to when they were found to have some factual inaccuracies, so this one's a bit different. There must have been some internal recognition that this one wasn't a particularly good look. But having said that, uh, this is not just a one-off story. This is actually a sponsored content arrangement that the Herald obviously has with the People's Daily. So if you look them up. 
There's a whole bunch of People's Daily stories still on their website, so they haven't obviously dumped the commercial arrangement entirely. So how do they get to that? Does that just come in into the into the newsroom and someone says, oh, let's put this on well, in the Herald? Well, yes. Uh, spoiler alert, but The Guardian has recently published uh, something of an investigation showing that, you know, the Chinese Communist Party has engaged in quite a large spread, large widespread uh, propaganda push for media outlets around the world, probably exploiting these kind of commercial business models where, you know, you can get content into the paper if you do pay enough money and people are needing the money. So maybe it's a little bit of that. Uh, that's a Guardian, Guardian investigation that you can check out. And the issue is that it's kind of understandable in a way that something like The Herald has to get by, but it's sort of different publishing something from Mazda about how their latest SUV drives really smoothly and something that's written essentially by the Chinese government. So... Yeah, in accepting the Sponcom money, uh, you know, it, it should probably come with some stipulations there, you know, especially when you're saying something like relocation has lifted people out of poverty. That's a bit of a, that's a pretty controversial statement. A relocation in China's had mixed reviews. Forcing people out of their homes is generally frowned upon even when done with good intentions. Does the editor get to see this or how does it get subbed? No, well, I... I don't want to speak out of turn because I don't know the, the Herald's exact structures, but they do have Sponcon editors. You know, they have people that are directly charged with Sponcon. Sponcon, sponsored content oh, editors and right. people that are charged with administering partner relationships and writing for these partner. You know, this is how it generally works. It works like that in the spin-off that's published this story. So, you know. Sponcon. Uh, you also wanted to share some, share some news about uh, Reporter of the Year. Yes, stuff's Kirsty Johnston. She won Reporter of the Year in the latest Voyages for her work covering family violence, family, uh, you know, uh, justice, the family justice system. Earlier this week, though, she announced that she's changing her round. She's, uh, from next year, going to be covering climate change instead. And I just thought the reason she gave for that decision was pretty notable. And it was? Yeah, essentially that reporting on family violence is no longer... Feasible, possible for her. So on Twitter, she called covering the round one of the most rewarding experience of, experiences of her career, but also that it's heartbreaking and infuriating and really, really hard, and that balancing victim safety with journalism ethics and her own mental health has been exhausting and isn't sustainable. Well, what does it say about family violence in this country and our family justice uh, system that she sees covering climate change as a less taxing task? Yeah, pretty stunning, right? Uh, not great things about the family justice system. I mean, she's she's telling us that she's literally turning her attention to large-scale ecological collapse as a kind of mental health break from covering uh, the family justice system. But when you read through her stories, it's understandable. I mean, one I read recently was about a woman who was able to prove to two courts that her ex was engaging in psychological violence against her. And despite that, when she applied to other courts for a protection order, she ended up being ordered to pay her abuser's court costs because she couldn't uh, prove that he posed a threat of physical violence to her. Now, another is uh, a famous one about a woman called Mrs. P, who was a subject of pretty infuriating injustice where a judge wrongly called her a liar and said she had made up abuse allegations against her ex-husband. She wasn't lying. Uh, there was ample evidence of that abuse. 
And it just as uh, when you read it, you see kind of a system that has real structural problems that seem very difficult to surmount. And, I mean, Kirsty Johnston's covered some of this. She revealed that police have been wrongly downgrading 33,000 family violence crimes a year, listing them instead as incidents. It's just basically it's heavy stuff. And that's uh, before talking about the practicalities of the work and you know, making sure that you're doing right by those victims. Absolutely, and if that's something that is, I guess, a privilege to deal with these people, but also a really hard thing because you want to do right by them. You know, you've got this burden of responsibility because you're dealing with people who have already been mistreated and have a lot to lose if you treat them in an irresponsible way. And actually, I've talked to Kirsty Johnson about that before, and this is what she said to me in an interview on Media Watch in 2021. Just on a personal note, is is this sort of work sustainable? Writing about violence, do you mean, and trauma? Yes, I don't think it is long-term. I think you kind of have to maybe dip in and out of it. It's a lot to hold people's stories and to worry about them all the time because you do, you you think, are they going to be okay? And often these victims, they will, they will dip in and out of wanting to do a story, right? And I think if we're talking about victim-centered reporting, some of the time that means not reporting. It's a bit like being a court reporter. I see the impact that has on um, journalists going to court and what they have to witness and sit through, even if they are you know, experienced journalists. And um, as Kirsty was talking there, it would be easy to feel hopeless reporting some of those stories. Yeah, harrowing. And I think probably a step above, oh, I don't want to, <laughs> I've never been either, but I, I almost might be in a way harder than being a court reporter because you're you're covering the structural injustices rather than just the day-to-day of the court judgments, even though those would feel really hard to take as well sometimes. And I think that those structural problems in the system, you know, recent journalists has put a spotlight on on them. You know, you have a lack of diversity in our courts. You have Pākehā uh, getting uh, name suppression, stuff like that, uh, deferred sentences or diversion more than uh, people of other ethnicities. You've got that kind of thing. That's being covered in RNZ. You've, you've seen the ways that these courts are weighted to serve the interests of an older, whiter cohort and dish out harsh justice to those that are not in that group. And uh, I guess that could feel pretty hard to take because it's hard to know, even with a big media platform, how to change it. So, I mean, just going back, this is what Kirsty Johnston and her colleague Michelle Duff had to say about the system in the intro to their Stuff podcast, Tell Me About It. We're both obsessed with the way the system is rigged against women and minorities. And that's what we come up against and what we're trying to highlight in all of our work. And I believe one of those um, structural problems has been revealed this week. Yeah, just quick note, um, We got a media release through, but Associate Professor Carrie Leonetti of uh, Auckland University has apparently done some research on the psychological assessments carried out on children for the family court, and she's come to the conclusion that uh, many of them utilise what she describes as unreliable pseudo-psychology or dangerous junk psychology, which can see children victimised. That's something that we got through this week. I mean, uh, there's also obviously a lot of the stuff that uh, Johnson herself highlights. And I guess just maybe that's why climate change seems to sort of be a bit of a breather in comparison in some ways. You know, in, in that round, there's there's despair, but there's also these elements of hope and progress. And you've got all of these infrastructures that are actually set up to make 
make that progress now. You know, countries are turning to renewable energy. They're electrifying their transit systems. They're zoning for infill housing. They're doing that kind of stuff. You've got COP27. You've got stuff that's trying to push things in the right direction. But with family justice reporting, there's a bit of that. But, uh, you know, it, it must feel like the process of reform is a huge mountain to climb. There's a lot of obstacles in the way. And there's actually so few journalists on the case compared to climate change. And maybe when you're covering it, you sometimes just have to take a break to catch your breath. Yeah, fair enough. I met with the court reporting, uh, the actual cases that they're reporting on when they when they are really traumatic cases, murder cases, and they sit through them for six weeks or whatever, uh, you know, in the sense of the the impact that it has on them. Yeah, I actually the haven't talked to it. too many court reporters about that. But yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, that would be very harrowing as well. And I mean, just covering the court in general. But then I also think that sitting with other people's injustice like this and sitting with what what would feel really difficult and, dif- and difficult to change as well. No resolution. There's not going to be a verdict at the end of it, is there? Well, not necessarily. And, and actually they're up against a system that's against them and often the, it's going to take long for the gears of justice to grind <laughs> away and it's going to maybe never resolve and you know that and you're really close to these people because you want to honour their, uh, you know, you want to do right by them. And so I think that I just, I can see how that would be very hard and how I might want to do climate change instead, to be honest. Right. Well, you know, when I say no resolution, there is ultimately resolution if you're in the family court. One person wins, don't they? Well, oh, I, I don't know about that, to be honest. I mean, another one of Kirsty's stories is about a woman whose ex-husband has been banned from speaking to her but has been allowed to file a hundred court judgment or court claims against her. So, you know, you have court abuse as well. You have these lingering processes that go on and on. And, yeah, I I think that would be difficult. Whereas maybe if you could, you know, just just, in other media coverages, areas, rounds, I feel like you can write a story and get resolution in a quicker sense because you don't have to go through the court system and set a date and go before a judge and all that sort of stuff. I understand. So stuff, there's uh, some structural changes in the wind at stuff. Yeah. Uh, we've, I, I spoke about this a few weeks ago, changes to stuff's regional newsrooms and the company was sort of proposing cutting a bunch of roles from its regional papers, Manutu Standard, Nelson Mail, Timaru Herald, they would all see their newsroom staff numbers cut from seven reporters to three. Taranaki Daily News, Southland Times, I'd see them going down to four each and from seven. And these job losses were being counterbalanced by this establishment of a new regional team made up of a group, regional editor, some news directors, some breaking news reporters. So kind of a reshuffle around. This is being sold by stuff at the moment strictly as a reorganisation. Everyone affected, they'll be allowed to stay where they are if they want, but it seems this is sort of more of an effort to centralise reporting and uh, spread out uh, you know, some of the, the reporters' work so that it can be used by other newsrooms, not just the one that they're stationed at. So there will be a team of people devoted to covering breaking news for all the papers headed by their own editor and news directors. And sure, you you will see stuff staff, they'll see a cut to regional news gathering. They will see uh, the people that used to sit next to them 
focusing entirely on, say, Manawatu or Taranaki, you know, they some of those people won't just be exclusively devoted to covering that region anymore, but stuff itself sees it as a move to increase efficiencies and tackle problems like rising costs and maybe skills shortages in some areas. Some areas were better staffed than others. Uh, a few texts here for you, Hayden. Richard says, you're so wrong about climate change. It is denial and obfuscation. Oh, yeah, I think climate change will be absolutely devastating and stressful to cover as well. I, I don't mean that this is a, a great and uh, stress-free round to go to. I more mean that the <laughs> intractable problems of the family justice system uh, might even be more emotional emotionally taxing in some ways.